oh, somewhere between nine and maybe 10 and 13, 14 years old, maybe 15. I, not that a lot's changed, but I was profoundly arrogant. I had all sorts of ideas about religion. I grew up kind of nominally in the church, then my mom had this conversion experience. But I was kind of successful in some things, and so people liked me. I mean, everybody liked me but me. I believed then, I was kind of a nerd back then too, that religion was an opiate for the masses at 12. And guess what? Sometimes it is. I believed Christians were all about bullying people to be like them. Sometimes they are. I'm just listening to the running, sorry. (laughs) I believed that other religious and non-religious people were both kinder and more loving and better and smarter than Christians. Sometimes they are. So how, four decades almost later, do I stand up in front of you, about to finish up a sermon series on the mission of God into the world and our participation in that mission as his people, to engage God's world in acts of justice and kindness and love and evangelism and mercy? We say in our philosophy of ministry that we are in and for the world We are not of the world, we're not against the world, but we are in it and we're for its flourishing. We also say that one of the fruit we hope comes from that tree, our philosophy ministry tree, is that our neighbors know that Jesus loves them, that we as a church would have a reputation of gracious work in the world, both in word and deed, that we would engage with people in our midst and outside of our community, and that we would sacrifice for them as we seek their thriving in the world. How did I get here? I'll tell you later. At the end of the sermon, not too long. We first started talking about Jesus and his mission to the world in Luke 4. He brings liberty to the captives and sight to the blind. The one who declares the year of the Lord's favor to this messed up planet with us messed up people. Then we jump to Micah 6.8, which is a classic text about what our responsibilities on the world are, is to uh, do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly, to do or live justly, to, to, to have an affection, to love mercy, kindness, forgiveness, grace for ourselves and others. And of course, to do that all in a way in which we walk in humility to the God who made us, not in arrogance to our neighbors, to the humility to the God who made us. We talked about hospitality. The welcome of God actually produces welcome among us. And so we invite people in, fling our doors open, not just to our friends, but even to our enemies, as he did for us. Then we explored the daily grind of life 
life itself as mission, how we play and work and go to grocery stores or get oil changes, how in some miraculous economy of God, that mundane becomes miraculous. I wasn't here last week. My brother Chris Horn preached a holy sermon. Listen to it or listen to it again like I did. It's on evangelism, but it it crafts evangelism on the manifestation of the love of God in Christ Jesus. And he says, in it, he says that evangelism is getting to help others find out whether God's love is real. So today we embark on Matthew 28, often called the Great Commission. It is, if you're churchy folk, man, this is real familiar, which makes it a nightmare for a pastor. I can confidently tell you this will not be the best sermon you've ever heard on the Great Commission. But, but maybe, (laughs) because in the mundane is when God does the miraculous. And I've preached plenty of sorry sermons that people are like, God changed my life. And I was like, I'm glad because I I almost fell asleep during it myself. Um, And so, (laughs) so I I do have three points because I'm a Presbyterian. Um, And so we're going to talk about the commissioner of the commission, the commission itself, and at this point, still an unnamed third point, because I've got lots of ideas about that, and I just don't know where to land, so I just decided not to land. I'll explain as we go. Okay, so when it comes to commissions, I grew up as a military brat, and I've been to more commissions than you can imagine. It's a part of my life. I saw my father be commissioned. I saw my father commission. There are ceremonies that are full of pageantry and purpose, a mission and authority, meaning and momentum. And that's what Jesus is doing in this passage. Matthew makes sure he tells us Jesus said to go to the mountaintop for this thing, because in Matthew, that's where, that's where the stuff happens, on mountaintops. The most important things in his gospel happen on mountains, and this is no different. So this great commission is for his followers to give them their mission, their purpose, little pageantry, uh, their authority, meaning, and momentum in the world. And yet the weird thing is that it doesn't start with the commission itself. It actually starts with the commissioner, the commish, if you're old enough to know that reference. Not that many of you. Um, So he says this, the commissioner, all authority. Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I just need you to not gloss that over. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. This is a foundationally and fundamentally radical statement. From a human perspective, he's a failed leader. His movement thwarted by the Roman Empire with help from the leaders of his own people to kill him. Even in this scene, which is after the resurrection. He's got 11 disciples on a hill in Galilee, which is way outside of the center of everything. And he comes to talk to them about this, and some of them worshiped, and some of them doubted. 
And at that point, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. It's seemingly ridiculous that he, the one who'd been broken, beaten, betrayed, killed, entombed, and resurrected, now standing in front of 11 dudes, one of them who betrayed him, is the reason they only have 11 and not 12. And they're not sure what's going on. That he is claiming authority over every square inch of not just earth, but the cosmos. It's either insanity or hubris or true. How can a man say such a thing? There's a reason why Paul wrote in his epistles that the good news of Jesus Christ, the crucifixion, was foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews. I once spent a week with an imam um, uh, in Charlotte, and he was captivated with Jesus. But this was it. He couldn't do this. It felt profane to him. That the sovereign king of the universe, which both Jews and Muslims agree about who the Godhead is, that he would lower himself to be a man. And that that man would then become and be given the rights, the, the gift of being the sovereign king of the universe? No. Except for when Jesus says that he has all authority in heaven and earth, he's not hedging. As much as I love hyperbole and metaphor, that's not what he's doing here. He's claiming every molecule and every, I think they spin or circle, electrons. He's saying, this is mine. And he does it while still having the visible wounds of the crucifixion in his body. No wonder it's a stumbling block. It is a perfectly legitimate and normal reaction to think this is foolishness. It's why I want some worshipped and some doubted. And what I want to say to that is, look at the kind of Lord Jesus we have. He embraces them in their doubt. He embraces the worship that they have. And then he commissions them. Do not be afraid of your doubts. They're invitations to see how glorious God is. And yet this is how the Great Commission starts, by orienting us to the, orienting us to the commissioner. He's going to do it later, which is my unnamed point. Now, of course, this commissioner is different than any other kind of ruler. A servant king creating a servant kingdom. Yes, prophesied about in Isaiah and promised in all of the scriptures, the long-awaited Christ and Messiah that would deliver Israel and therefore the whole world. But he's the king who would die for his friends and his enemies. That is a radical claim of a commissioner. And this is why we both doubt and worship. And that's why it's the only response even when we ourselves, who believe in the Lord Jesus, toggle between the two at times. It's too crazy. What else would you do? 
Now to the commission itself, the actual words of the commission, it is to make disciples of all nations. Here's a little grammar translation issue, is that there's only actually one imperative that is a verbal command in all of this, and that is to make disciples. The go there is actually a participle. My English major stuff's just really happy right now. I just want everybody to know that. It's actually going or as you're going. Um, not to make a big deal out of that, but there is one clear grammatical command. As you're going, make disciples of all nations, and this should encourage you. It means that the mundane days of your work, like we did a couple sermons ago, your playing, your rest, are the gardens where God flourishes you and reaches your neighbor. Now, we are going to all nations, it says. It's not passive. It's not without risk. It has an outward face. A desire to move into the world as far as the curse is found. All nations in the Greek is a word that is kind of a combination between uh, nation states and ethnicities or cultures. So that's kind of what we're talking about here. So it's not just geopolitical groups, but people and groups and types of people. Jesus is saying the world is, the entire world is our mission field. We're not just, you know, trying to preserve the holy land. But all cultures, geographical areas, I want you to invite all of them to be my followers, to abide with me. So at Redeemer, we go to all nations. This is why we send a, a slew of us to do VBS for our cross-cultural workers. It's why we support umpteen cross-cultural families. It's why we're doing the Bundi Water Project, and the youth are going to the DR, Dominican Republic. But it's also local, why we support the RAW, the Fellows, Young Life, RUF, a High Point Church Plant, Jail Ministries. That's what we're doing as we go. But here's the thing I want you to remember, and this is because this sometimes happens in certain cultures, including American Western culture, is um, I want you to be encouraged by this fact. Because sometimes we think, um, we forget that we're actually the end of the earth, that we were the all nations that the gospel came to. You guys, these 11 dudes didn't know there was anything past Spain. And I want that to do two things to us, to create a deep humility and a, and a kind of um, a waging against that we're somehow the or center or generative power in any of this. Um, the guardist against any kind of triumphalism and hubris. And also to simply say, wow. Wow. The 11 guys, if you got them to journal if you put them on LSD and got them to journal, they could not have thought. That's not in my notes, sorry, by the way. Dang it. <laughs> they could have never imagined the power and the reality of this promise when they thought about all authority and that the gospel would go forth in certain ways. Never imagined. Okay, back to the content of this commission. What's the first step in making disciples? If we were a dialogical church, you would all have been spewing out answers. You might be tempted to say it's something like bring the message of the gospel to bear. That's right. If you're grammatically doing it, you would say baptizing and then teaching. But I want you to be really clear. The first act of making disciples 
is you being there. It goes through us. It's not first the message, it's presence. In 2000, it was Billy Graham Amsterdam. It was, it was this huge convention of all the greatest evangelists in the world. And there was this moment where they're going to do a workshop, the greatest techniques in all of, 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 of kind of known circles. And they got all these guys from all over the world. And they workshopped with several hundred of them. And they were workshopping and workshopping. And they came out with the top 10 things strategies for the global making disciples of the world. And all these glorious, successful, wonderful people who have the gift of evangelists came up, and the number one thing was spend more time with people who don't believe. Christian ministry is fundamentally incarnational because we serve the incarnate God who is with us. It's foundationally a ministry of presence. And so we get there, we learn cultures and languages and more ways, we, mores, we stay curious and kind. And this is true with people across your street, across the tracks, and across the world. All of them. The mission of the divine requires human-to-human contact. In his economy, again, across the street, across the tracks, across the globe. And that's how we orient to the two things that he tells us to do. And I know for, like, I grew up in, like I said, non-blade Catholic, so the first one wouldn't throw me off growing up. But when I became a Protestant, I was like, you're going to start with baptism? That's weird. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The sacrament of baptism, and I would say, by analogy, the sacraments and worship in the church, are at the center, the first thing said, about how we make disciples. I think it's John Piper who said that the reason mission exists is because worship doesn't. It's that loyalty I was talking about in Ben's baptism, that he holds the authority, and we owe his, him his, uh, our fealty. He marks us with a sign of his sovereign grace over us and our reign over our lives, and then we live accordingly into that. Y'all, it is a very dangerous thing to be baptized in many cultures this very day. Because it's serious business. We take on his name, the name of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, which in and of itself is heresy to so many. And then together, we're, we're brought into this new humanity under the reign of God's grace. And this is the first step in the mission of God to the world. That's it. And then, to teach them everything he's commanded. Of course, one of the first things we teach them is how to repent. It's okay, you can admit it. You're a broken mess, and our Lord Jesus is here to forgive. Of course it's that. 
to simply own our sins and follies, to turn away from our self-reign and towards God's grace? Of course it's that. And y'all, if you've been walking with Jesus for a while, that takes a bit of home training. You don't really get past it. As my friend says, um, you know, the, the life of repentance isn't a tunnel you get through. It's a black hole you go deeper and deeper in. You don't outgrow your need to say you're sorry to God or to your neighbor or friend or enemy. Not this side of glory. But he also taught us that the motivating reality to be able to repent of our sins is actually the kindness of God. That's what leads to repentance. As we say, God is at work and grace changes everything. It's his grace that brings us to our knees, that we actually find safety there on our knees to own anything that's wrong with us or what's been done to us. It's God's grace that brings us to our knees. It's also God's grace that lets us stand up and walk. It's God's grace that gets us to stand up and walk, and then it's God's grace that lets us walk to our neighbor and share what God had done. Teaching them to obey everything I've commanded to you. Yeah, things like love your enemies. Like, you know, it doesn't profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul. Things like you can't serve God and money. Things like the last will be first and the first will be last. Things like you must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. Maybe that takes some training, some growth. Also things like fear not, I have overcome the world. Things like, I am the good shepherd who lays down his sheep, his life for his sheep. Things like, I've come for, as a ransom for many. Things like, I leave you a comforter. This is what makes us all lifelong learners. In fact, though it will be without sin, I don't know if it doesn't make us eternal learners. Even in glory. Will we ever plunge the depths of everything Jesus taught? We'll spend eternity doing it, growing. And grace. So the, the curriculum's kind of rough, right, on this teaching thing. And the, the, the deal is, the cool thing about uh, being sent on this commission is that the commission has been sent to you, so you are both student and teacher at the same time. You're both the recipient of the Great Commission and the, and the participant in the Great Commission. The vastness and the beauty of who Jesus is so I guess I just want to say, as you're, as you're both trying to learn and teach, I would love for you to be gracious with yourselves as you learn these new things. You know why? Not first kind of some psychological stuff, though psychological stuff's really good, but because he's shown us that he is kind to us in those things. And to be kind to yourselves and kind to others as you grow, folks. Especially little babies crying, it's all good sweet girl. You always begin anew under the banner of his love if you are operating under the commission of our Lord Jesus Christ. You get to do the training in a safe environment, and you get to create safe environments for other people to learn the training. It's hard to learn to obey. I should get an amen on that one. And it's a command, not a suggestion. But it's not separate from his grace. It is that very grace that fuels our obedience. 
So we have to be patient with ourselves and with one another as we're trying to, to kind of co-train together in the ways he is. Which leads me to my third unnamed point, which has had seven different names. Promise, comfort, courage. I was trying to keep the C's. I think it's basically just presence. Because the part we didn't read yet is that I will be with you always. Closeness. Dang it. Why didn't you call me? I mean, we should have had this conversation earlier. Dang it. I had like camaraderie and it sounded like real weird. And then I, was, I, was, I had all sorts of stuff. And it's a C one. It's not that hard. I know, sorry. The Great Commission is one of all authority where we make disciples to all nations that promises he will be with us always. That's the rub. This is Emmanuel, God with us. Nothing you've done or will do or how you've messed up a conversation with somebody else can get in the way of this. He is there in the middle of it. It doesn't mean you might not have to repent to the person that you messed up the conversation with it, but he'll be with there, there with you in that. As you show up in your brokenness and your weakness to your neighbors and all your glory even to your neighbors, he's actually there with you. And in some spiritual way that I don't understand, don't ask me, don't email me, I don't understand it. He's actually there in you doing the work for your good and the good of your neighbor. And so we show up in all of our weaknesses and brokenness, all of our folly and weakness to people who are foolish and weak as well. All because his reign is completely tied to the fact that he suffered everything, was tempted by all things, was killed, and then rose from the dead to vanquish that power and reign over our sin and folly and rebellion. And then he re-enters the world in the most bizarre way ever. He says, I'm going to re-enter through you. Could have had a strategy meaning before that. But that's what he wants to do. Because he's the good king who knows these little weak and broken things are the way that grace and mercy and love and actual power gets done in the world. Broken vessels spilling over with grace even as they leak to bring water to people. Look, y'all. Jesus actually tells the story. I mean, excuse me. Matthew actually tells the story of Jesus being offered dominion, power, earlier in Matthew. And it says that the tempter, when Jesus was at his weakest point after fasting for 40 days, says, if you will simply worship with me, worship me, I will give you the kingdoms of this world. And Jesus says no. First, because he trusted his father. Second, because he wasn't just looking for the kingdoms of this world. He wanted it all. Third, he had not yet gone to the cross. He had not yet been resurrected to both teach us, prove to us, show us, and embody the kind of kingdom he was bringing. Not yet. Not yet. So how did I end up preaching this sermon? I knew a woman whose life was transformed by Jesus. And frankly, she wouldn't stop talking about him. 
She stopped smoking her four packs a day. It's a lot of work to smoke four packs a day. She quit cold turkey and told me Jesus gave her the strength to do it. And she did gain 30 pounds afterward, but then she lost that too. So, you know. Addictions could be tough. She actually crushed her sugar and white flour addiction, which is what she went to after the cigarettes. And she said it was by the power of the risen Lord, which is weird, but interesting. She was kinder to me, to her family, saw with my own eyes. She laughed more, celebrated more, grieved more, cared about justice more. She had always had a kind of merciful heart, but it went on absolute steroids. She would have more people over, made the meals. We would tease her that she had her, her, um, her strays because that's where you knew you would be welcome, around my mother's table. She helped plant a church as a layperson. When the first worship service happened, there were 70 people there, and she had invited 60 of them. If you know my mom, well, she could be, well, mom, if you listen to this, you can be arrogant sometimes, but not toward another and where they struggle. All the while just telling me about how amazing Jesus was to her. Don't get me wrong, she tried all the sneaky tricks that people were told her how to do, like conveniently leaving the Bible open around the house so that, you know, we just glance upon it next to my cereal bowl. <laughs> she snuck in a couple tracks here and there. She tried to walk me down Romans Road. <laughs> she asked me, where would I go? Well, if I were before St. Peter, where would I go if I died that night? None of it got me. But somehow, being with me over time, and her bragging on what God had been doing, in all its folly and failure, all her struggles, I saw the signs and wonders, and I believed. She just kept talking about what God was doing, and Jesus was bewildering and beautiful utterly complex and incredibly simple. He cared about all of the oppression in the world and all the brokenness in the world. And he loved the oppressed and the oppressor? Come on. He saw, and I was able to admit my raw and misshapen desires and still love me? That was it. Little by little, one wonderful night. Weirdly enough, after a zillion successes, and literally accolades and awards, the hollowness of my heart broke. And I believed the outlandish, radical thing I've ever believed and still believe, though sometimes with doubt, oftentimes with worship, that Jesus was the Son of God, sent to live and die and rise again, to rescue and remake this world, to rescue and remake me. And that he has all authority in heaven and on the earth, even when it doesn't look like it. But he sent my mom to come tell me that. And he was with her. And so he was with me when she was with me. 
and now with me until that great day because he loves the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us take the pressure off and the goofiness off and all the, all the stuff that we, we uh, attach to this commission, but then let us embrace the realities of this commission and your power, that you are the beginning and the end of it. You're the authority and the comfort and the presence and the kindness. We pray all this in your name. Amen.